Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today I'm presenting a class by Joe Cooper, one of the 10th group docs on PTSD, TBI and suicide. Uh, I think this is something that we really need to start talking about. Uh, something we really need to get a good understanding and get a hold of because we're definitely losing far too many people than than we should be. Um, I'll let Joe introduce himself and then uh, we'll get going. Hi, my name is Joe Cooper. I'm a physician out of the 10th Special Forces Group. And uh, today we'll be talking about PTSD, TBI, sleep, suicide, all of those things that are the unfortunate byproducts of any conflict, but especially uh, 20 years of combat in the global war on terror. Uh, background on uh, this chat is that I'm a prior service infantryman deployed to Afghanistan uh, with uh, 5th Striker Brigade out of Fort Lewis in 2009-2010. Uh, after that, went to med school a couple years later, became a physician, and then when I got back into uh, the Army and was practicing at a different duty location, I noticed that there were a lot of physicians who saw PTSD and TBI and sleep sort of as these discrete, not overlapping conditions, or if they saw them as overlapping conditions, they didn't often treat them that way. And similarly, I would hear soldiers talk about them that way, even though very clearly, in my opinion, at least, um, these conditions overlap and, and are definitely have high levels of comorbidity within our population and strongly affect uh, the presentation of of each other as conditions. And so I made a, a presentation for the physicians I was working with, which eventually got selected uh, as a keynote presentation for the Uniformed Services Academy of Family Physicians. And uh, after meeting with Dennis at Ragged Edge earlier this year, we discussed uh, doing a podcast on it. So this is a modified version of that presentation uh, adjusted to focus more on uh, some of the, the topics outside of just PTSD and how you as a medic, or if you're a non-medic listening to this, um, how you can either advocate for yourself or others on your team. And, and really what, what the latest is on the pathophysiology of, of these conditions, how they affect each other, and um, what you should expect from the system. Because uh, one of the things I think that we need to be doing is holding the system standard. So, um, yes, this is, this is a modified version of presentation called Taking the Disorder Out of PTSD, a different perspective on post-traumatic stress. And again, it was uh, originally given at USAFP with Dr. Dan Maurer, who is a uh, psychologist at Womack Army Medical Center. Uh, disclaimer, I am absolutely speaking on behalf of myself, I'm not representing DOD, USACOM, US Army, or any other organization. This is just me. So why PTSD? Uh, why TBI, why sleep, why suicide, why talk about it? Well, um, probably for the same reasons you both want to talk about and don't want to talk about, I feel the same. Um, 
you know, we, we all wish this wasn't here, but the truth is it's here. It's still destroying families. It's still destroying the lives of our friends. Um, it's got high visibility on social media and within social circles. Got a lot of changes to diagnostic and treatment criteria. There's some, frankly, some very, very old ideas out there. Um, we have a confusing clinical picture given the high association with comorbidities. Uh, there seems to be a constant influx of new treatments uh, in military-focused private treatment facilities, uh, which definitely, if, if we're not careful, um, can, can take our money and really not give us much back for it in, reserve, in, in return. We also have the military's sort of search for the holy grail of PTSD, TBI, sleep resiliency, whatever the hot topic of the day is. And that's not to say that the military doesn't care. That's actually one of the things that I, th I think really is changing now is that the higher command really does care. But um, it is military. It is a huge bureaucracy and people can get hung up on one particular term or, or uh, condition and, and sort of hyper focus on that. Uh, and finally, a thing that we're going to talk about a lot is, is post-traumatic stress versus post-traumatic stress disorder versus post-traumatic stress growth. And, and they're very different things and they, they're not interchangeable. And I think that understanding that can help people maybe look at, at where we're trying to go in a different manner. So quick disclaimer before we get started, uh, throughout this talk, whenever I refer to TBI, Assume I'm talking about a, a chronic or old injury, i.e. you were exposed in the past uh, to explosions, concussions, things like that over time. Um, there will be times uh, where I talk about more acute or more recent injuries, um, but, but the majority of this, we're talking about older injuries and the cumulative effect of GWAT, and, and that's really what I'm talking about with TBI. Uh, this distinction is important because, as we'll get to later, there's definitely a, a difference in both the evaluation, assessment, and treatment of old versus new traumatic brain injury. Um, and, and in the older injuries, that's where we're running into a bit of an issue. Uh, we'll start this off with a patient presentation. Uh, for, for those of you who are not medics uh, or not medically uh, in the medical field out there, this is often something we do to give a tangible basis uh, for uh, discussions we're having. So, um, the patient that we're going to use is not in my current organization or associated with my current organization in any way. Uh, this is a 31 or 36 year old active duty service member. He was presented for retirement physical, uh, two years out. He said, you know, doc, I've got a couple joint injuries, nothing major. This guy was a super high performer. He was serving as a senior leader of a highly respected army unit. He had absolutely uh, no concerns, said, you know, this would be in, out, easy, done. However, there's always the rest of the story, right? So um, I had known this patient from a previous life when I was in the infantry. And after talking for a little bit, he opened up to me. And turns out there was more there than just some joint injuries. So his wife had passed away of a drug overdose nine years prior, leaving him as the single parent of their young daughter. He had had seven combat deployments, each with a significant amount of trauma exposure. Uh, he had pretty si uh, significant insomnia, probably the most severe I've ever seen. Um, he was averaging somewhere between one and three hours of sleep nightly for four to six years. Uh, he endorsed some uh, 
mild to moderate autonomic dysfunction in multiple domains. He denied any emotional instability. He said, you know, I am calm and in control of everything at all times uh, and denied any history of suicide or homicidal ideation. Um, and, and those last two claims, I mean, this guy was super high performing uh, at this time and had absolutely zero slip ups and uh, to get where he had gotten had to have been very high performing throughout his career. So getting into a little bit of pathophysiology, we won't get too into the weeds here, but, but uh, I think we do need to discuss this real quick in order to have an educated um, uh, adventure down this path. So when we talk about PTSD, um, I think the simple way to look at it is it is a change to your brain that, that makes sense if you consider it evolutionarily. Um, it's a change to your brain that makes sense that doesn't get back to baseline and, and doesn't, uh, and does in, in, at the end of things really impact your functionality, right? So the brain change we're talking about more than anything is a shift of what is interpreting information. So, um, you know, one of the oldest parts of our brains as mammals is the amygdala, uh, which is the fight or flight response, right? And, and that is, that is something that we share, uh, with many complex organisms. And that's, that's the part of your brain that says, this could kill me. I live through it, but I have to interpret all information to, to see if that thing's going to kill me. Um, as we evolved and we developed this huge prefrontal cortex, which is the executive function part of our brain, we learned to, or our brain shifted what is interpreting information, right? So we went from that fight or flight part of our brain, interpreting information primarily to the prefrontal cortex, which says, hmm, here's, here is in a uh, concise, objective way what this information is, right? Well, when you expose a person to uh, a psychologically traumatic event, um, functional MRIs show that the amygdala uh, enlarges in its role, um, pretty significantly and information gets, uh, uh, funneled through the amygdala that otherwise would have gone through the prefrontal cortex. It makes sense. It's, it's what allows your brain to go. That animal was just trying to kill me. I've absolutely got to remember that. And next time I see or hear the senses that were just before that animal tried to kill me, I, I've got to be on my toes and that will keep me alive, right? So that, that makes sense when we're living in that type of world. And that also makes sense when you're in combat or you're training for combat. And, and this is one of the things we'll talk about later on of uh, some adaptive responses that, that folks have that, that they don't want to get rid of. Um, it, it is those mechanisms that are developed to keep you alive, but it all starts with early triggering that fight or flight response to get your body ready to rapidly, uh, essentially immediately react rather than that slower, deliberate prefrontal cortex uh, interpretation of, of information reaction, right? So the point of that is there is a functional change to the brain that comes from psychological stress, okay? And that does not mean that all changes from psychological stress suddenly are post-traumatic stress disorder. Those are two different things. But when you're exposed, that part of the brain gets bigger. Just like when you do squats, your legs get bigger. Same thing, okay? So now we'll go to 
a uh, keeping that in mind, we're going to go to a slide that is sort of the the basis of everything that we're going to talk about. And if you're, I'm going to describe this slide. If you're not uh, looking at, at the uh, attached PDF, so. This slide is a Venn diagram, okay? And, and this is sort of the way I look at um, a lot of the issues our guys are, are facing. And it's it's two big circles, and one of them says physical health conditions, the other one says mental health conditions, and the overlapping circle in the middle is symptoms, okay? And the symptoms are one, is none of this is exhaustive. This is more to be an illustration than anything. But the symptoms are symptoms that we find fairly commonly uh, in a lot of our GWAT veterans, okay? Uh, and what I put in there is memory and concentration issues, fatigue, erectile dysfunction, mood instability, depression symptoms, sleep issues, weight gain, decreased exercise tolerance, and relationship stress. Again, not exhaustive, but, but remember that list, all right? Then in the mental health conditions, these are conditions that are common to many of our GY veterans. Uh, it includes PTSD, anxiety, grief, depression, and chronic stress, physical health conditions common to our GY veterans, TBI, hormonal axis imbalance, chronic pain, metabolic syndrome, uh, chronic inflammation, chronic stress, poor sleep. What's the point of this slide? The point of this slide and, and, and sort of this principle is that um, we, both as physicians, as soldiers, as military leaders, as all of those things, just as humans, love to put things in boxes, right? And we like to get excited about whatever's uh, the hotness recently. So if I say to someone who recently read an article or saw something on social media about TBI, hey, this guy's got memory and concentration issues and he's got... Uh, some mood instability and he's got some sleep issues and that guy recently read something on TBI is like, oh, he's got TBI, period. No question. Um, and if I say that to a neurologist, uh, a lot of neurologists are going to think TBI as well. I, again, this presentation was originally made for, for physicians um, because there is a lot of, of pigeonholing of these symptoms and of folks with these symptoms uh, into specific diagnosis. Um, without considering overlapping diagnosis. So don't, if, if I just described you, don't beat yourself up. This is something everyone's struggling with, including myself. Because the point is, if I take those same three symptoms, right? Um, memory and concentration, mood instability, sleep, I can just as easily say, well, that's PTSD. Um, that's the result of chronic stress. That's the result of chronic pain that then results in insomnia and, and, and creates those others, right? So the point is, is that those conditions I listed are extremely common in our population. The symptoms I listed are also extremely common. And I would posit that we do not have uh, the scientific means or evidence to clearly delineate in our population at this point in time between those conditions and causing those symptoms. A, or the simple way of putting it is none of us can accurately say whether it's the TBI, the PTSD, the sleep, the alcohol, or what combination thereof that's causing the symptoms that most guys suffer with. Why is this important? Well, because when we put all of our eggs in the basket of 
gee, if we could just fix TBI, we would fix everything. Or if we would just fix sleep, we could fix everything. Same with PTSD. We did that with PTSD for a long time. I mean, if you look at the diagnosis rates of PTSD from 2005 to 2015, I mean, it was just pretty much constant, both within the military and the VA. And then we started to take a step back and go, wow, um, we're diagnosing PTSD all the time. Uh, we've got some really good treatments for PTSD and we'll get into that later. Uh, and not everyone's getting better. And oh, by the way, they have these other symptoms that PTSD doesn't completely explain. I would argue that right now we're to some degree doing the same thing with TBI. We're learning more about it. It's, um, written about all over the place. And I think we're, we're sort of getting hung up on that too. And so that's really, this is the crux of what this discussion's about today is that um, as difficult as it is, we, we cannot pigeonhole, um, either these specific symptoms nor the soldier can, uh, that's got these symptoms as only due to condition X or like 99% due to condition X without considering condition Y and Z and properly in, in, as a result, properly evaluating and treating those other conditions as well. Um, so on to the next slide. So we're going to, we're going to go down the PTSD path for a little bit, and then we'll come back and talk about the others. Um, because PTSD is so commonly, uh, in common lexicon, it is so commonly discussed with everyone. And, and if you really talk to folks about it, there's, you know, I would, I would argue that within our non-medical population in the military, you ask 10 different guys what it is, you get 10 different answers. I would also argue within our medical population, if you ask 10 different folks what it is, probably get five different answers. I mean, it's not, it's not that clear cut and it's used all the time, uh, not necessarily in the way it's, it's intended to be used. So we're not going to go through all of the diagnostic criteria. You can pull out the DSM if you want that. But what we are going to do is talk about some really key parts about this. So number one, most importantly, when is post-traumatic stress disorder a disorder? That is to say, people experience post-traumatic stress all the time. Okay. Um, does that mean that every single person that has that and has some uh, response to it, going back to, if you remember the changes to the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, do all of those people absolutely have a disorder? Well, the, the answer by the DSM, uh, and, and psychologist is no. Um, a key part is functional impairment. Okay. So those symptoms have to interfere with the patient's daily functioning period. Okay. Um, then within that, you have to remember, if you're the provider, you're only getting a snapshot of that patient. So you should never diagnose someone on their best or worst day. If you're the medic, similarly, like just because someone has a bad day uh, where they have some bad memories, that does not mean that they have PTSD. Also doesn't mean because you've only seen it once that they don't have it. Okay. It means that they need a good thorough assessment, um, which the DOD and VA guidelines recommend is actually having happening multiple times in order to get a better picture. But the bottom line is there has to be a functional impairment. Okay. Um, there's, there's a huge comorbidity with sleep disorders and PTSD. Um, and this comorbidity uh, really is, is part of, in my opinion, what, uh, makes this diagnosis so difficult to assess and treat because we know that, um, uh, 
when your brain has gone through a lot of psychological trauma, uh, it's trying to make sense of it. It's trying to heal itself. Just leave out the physical trauma of TBI, just the psychological. It's, it, it takes a lot of, um, uh, regeneration to really sort that stuff out, right? Well, when does regeneration happen? Well, it happens when we sleep. And if you have 90% of patients with PTSD, uh, reporting, uh, difficulty sleeping, which is what it is, um, and somewhere around 50% of PTSD victims, uh, non-military, uh, folks with PTSD report or meet criteria for insomnia, well, then you've got the double whammy of having that injury and the time you need to fix it's not there, right? Um, add in nightmares, uh, which apart from just poor sleep with PTSD, you've got huge issues with nightmares at the same time. That also impacts this, right? And, and really then you run into the issue of what of this it, when you talk about the functionality stuff, right? The, the implicit parts of that we're talking about are, are issues with mood, issues with interpersonal relationships, <clears throat> inner issues with cognition. Well, if you're not sleeping, how good is your mood going to be? How good is your cognition going to be? How stable are your interpersonal relationships going to be? I'm, I'm not positing that sleep is causing everything. It's not to say that at all. It's to say that we, this is where very quickly you, if you're looking at this holistically and you're looking at all the contributing factors to the functionality of someone, you can't just say, bam, it's PTSD and that's it. Um, one of the really interesting <clears throat> studies that, uh, came out a couple years ago is that if you simply improve people's sleep, uh, who have a diagnosis of PTSD, their symptoms dramatically improve. It does not, uh, cure PTSD per se. We'll get into what, uh, what actually, um, uh, fixes that underlying disorder in a little bit. But as far as what, uh, what truly makes it, uh, better, one of the very first things you can do is actually deal with their sleep. Okay. Um, I mentioned a little bit ago that there is a DOD and VA screening and treatment algorithm. It's excellent. Um, I would encourage any practitioners who aren't, uh, aware of this, uh, to Google it. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty darn, um, comprehensive. And the thing that's great about it is that in my opinion, as a, as a soldier, uh, who's also a clinician, it doesn't just say, here's what drug you're going to use. It's, it's not that at all. In fact, it is extremely soldier centered. So it talks about doing, um, recurrent screenings because folks can fall through the cracks. It says the treatment above all else should be patient centered. Okay. So if you, it really gets at if someone doesn't have buy-in and, and they don't want to participate and you haven't structured, uh, their treatment around their desires, then you're failing. Okay. Um, and then the treatment is based on therapy first. And, and that is for clinicians out there. This is one of the areas where we've been failing historically with PTSD over the past uh, 15, 20 years is there's been a lot of times where folks came in for help and, um, we offered them meds very quickly, uh, instead of really trying to get them 
uh, to buy into therapy and, and get that started. And as a result, a lot of guys, there, there's, there's a, a, a strong sentiment out there that says, well, if I go and tell them I'm having this issue, they're just going to give me pills and I don't want pills. And my buddy took pills and they turned him into a zombie and I don't want that. Right. And so we, we've lost being able to effectively help that patient, at least until we convince them that, that we have a different mindset. Right. And so the fact that I just love that this is patient centered and it's therapy first and it's evidence-based. This is not just some stuff they came up with to get more people to come in to get help. Um, this was based on some really high quality evidence. So if you're a practitioner um, and you haven't uh, looked at the DOD uh, VA guidelines for treatment of PTSD, strongly would encourage you to do it. As far as fundamentals of treatment of PTSD, um, it is primarily a disorder of um, uh, avoidance, right? And it's, and it's an avoidance that is affecting your daily functionality. So the fundamentals of treatment really are prolonged exposure to, to the underlying, uh, event that's causing that avoidance, uh, cognitive processing therapy, i.e. like going back through and, and getting the, person to uh, come to grips with that event or get in their mind to and accepting it and a new way of looking at it. And then you have eye movement desensitization, desensitization and reprocessing. I apologize. I'm from the mountains of Virginia. I can't really read. Um, EMDR. So that's, that's the one therapy I want to touch on here because, um, I've run into some issues with non-medical folks not understanding this. So this is that thing that like apparently uh, one of the British princes did um, on an interview with Oprah or something. Uh, a couple of people sent that to me. They're like, hey, doc, is this the type of stuff that, that you recommend? I actually do. It's got pretty darn good evidence. And most psychologists who think that someone's a good candidate for this, they are. That said, it can cause a very... Um, I would say I, I would describe as a very robust, um, re-exposure to the underlying trauma. So you medics out there and physicians know that when someone's going through this, um, this is a time where they're particularly vulnerable. Okay. Um, and, and I definitely have seen where folks have gone through this treatment, um, and then, uh, stayed in a high sense of vulnerability. And if, I didn't watch to make sure that they had good follow-up, i.e. they didn't skip out on their appointments with psychology. Um, they got into a bad place mentally. So if they're going to go down this route, you really got to make sure that they go all the way down this route because um, all PTSD treatment, but especially this one, what you're really talking about is ripping the scab off, right? Like you have a wound, it, it's healed over, it hasn't healed over correctly. So we need to rip that scab back off and, and clean it out good and then allow it to heal in, in quote, the right way. Okay. But when you rip that scab back off, well, guess what? Now that wound is re-exposed to the outside world. So it's, it's really important that when you do that, you realize the vulnerability, uh, that, that the soldier has at that time. Uh, outcome data. So I want to really quickly talk about why this stuff works and, 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 this will all tie together at the end of, of why I think therapy is such a, a wonderful tool, but 85 to 90% of those who go through, um, uh, formal psychological treatment for PTSD have clinically significant improvement post-treatment. 
75 to 85% experience clinically significant improvement six to 24 months. I can think of very few conditions out there that have that level of success and and literally no side effects or almost no side effects, right? Like you have the vulnerability I just talked about with EMDR, but as a general principle, um, therapy relatively to pharmacotherapy or procedures has little to no side effect, okay? And to have a 85 to 90% solution uh, is, is just absolutely unheard of in most areas of medicine. So um, this, is, this is really, really big deal to me. And, and one of the reasons why I think that, that frankly, um, therapy should be the mainstay as it is in, in the DOD VA guidelines. And we really should be looking at using this uh, with our patients who have this condition. Dropout rates. This is where we have issues though, right? Like folks who go in and they'll say, well, I went to see someone and if they didn't complete the treatment, well, th that data I just gave you is based on completing the treatment. Not only that, like I just gave you with the uh, analogy to ripping the scab off with EMDR, it's, I would argue it's frankly dangerous to some degree to not uh, complete the treatment. Now, I'm not saying you hold the guy's hands or give him non-judicial punishment or some stuff like that. Like, no, that's stupid. The The point of it, I would say, though, is that if, if you're going to send someone for PTSD treatment, you really need to do a good job of selling that ahead of time so that they don't uh, drop out because that's that's a real risk of vulnerability. Um and, and, and really not one that, that we can just gloss over. Um, so, but yeah, bottom line, the uh, DHA system, uh, right now the most recent data I believe we have is that 50% of behavioral health referrals um, submitted by medical staff, the patient never even schedules an appointment, right? So it, it's, it's really a big deal. Um, nightmares. So we talked a little bit about nightmares a little bit ago with the sleep and the PTSD. Bottom line is they come from trauma, worry, uh, and lack of sleep and anxiety, right? Well, all of those things usually are pretty much do accompany PTSD. Um, and this is, this can be one of the most severe features for a lot of folks. Um, it actually was part of the, uh, or is part of the diagnostic criteria and was one of the main reasons why a lot of guys were diagnosed with PTSD. Really important to know, you can treat the nightmares. If someone doesn't have the buy-in for PTSD, you can treat the nightmares without treating the PTSD. Um, for a while, it was being treated um, via a medication called prazosin, uh, primarily, and it still can be. It's a highly effective medication for uh, essentially taking away your uh, nightmares without having significant other um, side effects. It does not treat PTSD. It just treats the nightmares, okay? Um, and there's excellent therapy out there uh, that is not the PTSD therapies that we just discussed for treatment of nightmare, okay? Um, but that they are, they are accompanying uh, the PTSD, but just because the nightmares are gone, doesn't mean the PTSD is gone. That said, if you get rid of someone's nightmares and they suddenly start sleeping better, they're going to be much more responsive to therapy and their overall functionality is going to improve. And if they weren't, uh, if they didn't have great buy-in to begin with, that may be your tool to getting them to go, oh, wow, uh, this stuff really can help me.
So as far as alternative therapies, and I put alternative in quotation marks uh, because some of you are going to hear this and go, wait, what do you mean alternative? That's what we're using all the time. These are not um, first or second line therapies according to the guidelines I referenced, nor according to the DSM. Are they effective? Yes, and we'll go into the specifics of it now, um, but, but you have to keep in mind what they're used for. So the first is stellate ganglion block. Um, this is highly used in uh, some of our special operations units. Um, there's a number of uh, papers that have been written about it. And it has, the, the, the evidence on it pretty much is excellent efficacy uh, for a discrete period of time, uh, somewhere between uh, six weeks and six months usually it is uh, between the papers and just empirically what I've heard for fo from folks, um, that's, that's usually the period of time that it provides relief. Um, the relief for, for folks who are responders, um, the relief is pretty profound. Um, and I think that there's a cohort out there that this makes great sense for. If you remember, I talked about the vulnerability associated with therapy. Well, if, if you're a person who is um, still on a regular basis uh, going into kinetic environments that have a, a, a real need for a strong uh, fight or flight response and strong autonomic responses. And, you know, just before a deployment or, or a short trip or something, you uh, go into some super intense therapy. Well, you know, th there's, I would argue that there's some risk associated with that uh, for yourself and your teammates, uh, potentially. So if, if you can give someone a, a uh, pharmacologic uh, treatment, in this case, this, this nerve block that has very little side effects, uh, as long as it's done properly and has excellent outcomes. Well, I mean, that seems to me to be a pretty darn good, um, a, a pretty darn good treatment for that, that personnel group. Now, what this is not, this is not curative. Okay. So if you go back to the numbers I talked about earlier for therapy with PTSD, um, that, you know, those are numbers that are reflecting long-term curative rates, both within the military, out of the military. Um, that is accepted as sort of the gold standard, right? The stellate ganglion block works for symptoms and it works for a discrete period of time. Okay. So those are really important differences that, that are, that are important to acknowledge. Uh, similarly, ketamine. Uh, so there's, there's more and more clinics that are using ketamine as either an adjunctive therapy, um, uh, or even, uh, some are trying to use it as a standalone therapy for PTSD. Um, is it effective? Yes, to, to an extent, right? So the, the evidence out there shows that for some folks, this is an excellent treatment in short duration symptom relief. Those studies were done in small numbers, just like stellate ganglion block. There's not any huge, uh, uh, like massive studies out there for that, nor really will there be because of the, of the nature of the treatment for right now. Um, but it, in, in small, uh, groups of folks that this has been studied in, it does seem to be effective. Now, that said, um, empirically, one of the issues I've heard about it when talking with folks who have had the treatment or even discussing the treatment is there have been some folks who have had negative experiences with ketamine in uh, combat situations, i.e. having a bad trip 
when they were getting flown out of country and oh god doc never give me ketamine again like that's terrifying even the idea of it and so that there are some potential side effects of that um, and so I'm not saying it's it's a bad treatment. It's certainly not a cure-all either. I think in the right patient population, uh, this is a good treatment, but it's certainly not something that I would advocate giving to everyone across the board. And again, it's short duration, uh, symptom relief, not curative. Another, another group of this short duration symptom relief is acupuncture, cannabis, and mindfulness. I put these three together because um, the evidence is pretty similar for all of them. The symptoms associated with PTSD, uh, they're very good at relieving those symptoms, uh, especially the anxiety um, and, and calming uh, some of the mood instability issues as well as hyperarousal state. So, so they can be good for treating some of the symptoms. Are they curative? No. Testosterone is on this list simply as a, a reminder to um, really think through whenever someone's like, hey, testosterone's a cure-all. Got it. We've got uh, some guys who have low testosterone, um, usually associated with hormonal axis imbalance and TBI, um, and they hear about, you know, they get testosterone, suddenly it levels things out, and they feel better. And then they tell 30 other guys, and then those 30 other guys uh, quickly uh, get the thought that, Hey, if I have testosterone, it's going to fix everything in my life. Well, that's not the answer almost ever. We, we know that the negative side effects of, of, uh, testosterone, uh, replacement therapy, if you truly don't have, uh, if you truly aren't in need of it. Right. But for PTSD, it absolutely has no role. Um, like it's, it's simply, there's no, and if anyone out there knows of a role, Please let me know, but I can, I've not been able to find any evidence for this whatsoever. I cannot see uh, in the pathophysiology of PTSD how testosterone replacement therapy could work. Now, if you're talking about it in terms of going back to that, uh, the, the, um, the comorbid medical conditions, right? And if one of the issues you're having is mood instability and relationship issues, and part of that is because your testosterone is like, I mean, nothing. Well, then, yes, that might help those other parts of, of your life and what's going on. But as far as PTSD alone, no, if someone comes to you and says, hey, I heard my buddy, he got he has PTSD and it's all better from testosterone. That's just not a real thing. Uh, finally, vagal nerve stimulation. Um, this is something that's only been done in animal models like there's there's again, we're, we're talking on the extremes of experimentation that maybe might be a thing uh, in 10 or 15 years, but it certainly isn't right now. What's most important about these therapies, in my opinion, is, is the buy-in, right? Like we really need uh, our folks uh, to trust us. And in order for them to trust us, we got to do our jobs and we got to know, uh, you know, here's, here's what's going on. Here's what the, what the evidence is for, treatments for what's going on with you, both the common treatments as well as alternative treatments. And I think that one of the places where medicine uh, over the past uh, 10 to 15 years has not done a great job maybe is, is, you know, we've not always been as informed as we should be about alternative therapies and had a great answer to folks who have had uh, some very reasonable questions about things that they've read. And, and really we come out looking sort of narrow-minded and, and like we aren't really up on all the evidence and what have you. Um, so I would 
more importantly than, than these particular treatments is I would strongly encourage you in these fields to keep, keep on the lookout. If there is something new going around social media, go and find the evidence so that when your guys ask you about it, you can say, Hey, here's, here's no kidding. Here's what the background is. And here's what I think. So, um, now that leads into issues with soldier buy-in and compliance, right? And that's, that's sort of implicitly what I've been talking about throughout several parts of this, whether it's the VA guidelines or these alternative therapies. Um, and the reason why this is so important is because if therapy is the best long-term curative treatment, therapy requires buy-in, period. Like it's, it's gotta be there. Well, what are things that really are the barriers to therapy? This is where it gets sort of into, um, Joe Cooper's, uh, interpretation of this because they're, you know, don't really write this in a book. Um, I think we run into the issue of victim status versus hero worship. Um, I think this is best spelled out in Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe. Uh, if you haven't read it, strongly recommend it. He's a filmmaker who's uh, a journalist who's gone to a bunch of different war zones. He was with the 173rd um, for a couple years in the Corndale Valley and and uh, wrote the book uh, Restrepo out of there, or produced a movie Restrepo out of there, and then wrote the book Tribe. And, and Tribe gets to some great principles, but one of them that I think is we underestimate how important it is, is this victim status versus hero worship. So when you're telling someone that they have PTSD and they think of it as this huge negative, you're going, you know, for, for a long time, they've been told you're this barrel chested freedom fire. You're a freaking Superman compared to the rest of the world. We all love you, yada, yada, yada. And then now it's suddenly, uh, you're just a victim. And I don't know about you all, but, I don't want to be called a victim and most of my peers I went to war with don't want to be called victims. And, um, it's pretty hard to, to tell someone, Hey, you're, you're suddenly failing at all this. I don't think we should be telling them that. And that's why it's a really important to sort of try to balance that ship and, and say, Hey, look, you don't have to be either a victim nor a hero. It just sort of is where your brain's at. And I'll get to in a bit how I think a good way to, um, to convey that to folks is. I think another issue is difficulty connecting with providers. They, the, they don't understand mentality. Medics, this is where you all come in. Like, this is huge. Like, you, I can't emphasize enough. If you sell the treatment ahead of time, you're going to make it to where the provider can get the buy-in and actually complete it. But if, if you, it has to be real, can't be fake selling it. And I wouldn't ask you to do that. But if, if, if the guys don't hear from you that you support it, the chances of them going and getting the treatment they need, and it doesn't matter whether it's now and they've been on a team for two years or 30 years from now, when they call you up and say, Hey doc, I'm having these nightmares. What do you think? You're that guy that sort of bridges the team guy and the medical guy. And if, if you're, if you're not saying, here's why this is good, uh, chances of them having that buy-in is pretty darn low, right? So 
it's really important uh, uh, for you to help guide your, your folks. And again, I'm not telling you to blindly tell them all, hey, go do whatever a doctor says. This is why it's really important that you as a medic stay right up on this stuff and, and, and talk with your battalion uh, surgeons or whatever whatever doc is level over you, talking with them and going, hey, what do you think of this and this and this? And what can I read to stay up on it to give my guys the best advice? Um, there's a lot of issues with soldier identity as a defense mechanism. Uh, there's a lot of guys concerned that if they uh, admit they have PTSD, not only are they this victim, but they also, if they go to therapy, well, if they go to the doctor, the doctor's going to give them a pill. We already talked about that. They're not going to, or they shouldn't be at least, uh, first line. And then even if they don't give them a pill, they're going to take them through therapy that takes away who they are as soldiers, right? And I get that. But guess what? That is not what PTSD therapy does. PTSD therapy is focused on that functionality part. So, um, as an example, if you were, if you were a guy who was in Fallujah in 04 and there was a whole bunch of, uh, dismounted IEDs, uh, set up wherever there was trash, right? And you come back and for the next 10 years, whenever you see anyone walk towards trash on the ground, you go tackle them and drag them away from there because your brain's like, holy crap, they're about to blow up, right? Well, that's going to impact your functionality. I mean, obviously that's hyperbole, but, but that's what I'm talking about when I say it affects your functionality. So you're, they're not, the, the, the therapy is going to be focused on realizing that not every pizza box that's laying on the ground is going to kill every single person walking by there, even though your brain, that person's brain initially wants to see it that way. Right. Um, the, the, that's what the therapy is going to be focused on. The therapy is not going to be focused on taking away all of those other adaptations, uh, that the person got from, uh, a career in the military. I, I have talked with this, uh, talked with this until I'm blue in the face with the guys and saying, look, they're not trying to make you not be a soldier. Um, they're just trying to take those areas in which the functionality is impaired and that's it. Okay. Um, that's really what it comes down to. So again, this is where as a medic, you can really help get buy-in, um, security clearances. Uh, I would strongly recommend everyone who's looking at this to go to dcsa.mil, um, there is a DCSA. DCSA is the uh, the the folks who do the security clearance uh, or security clearances, and there is a fact sheet about mental health. So if you just Google DCSA fact sheet mental health, it'll come up. And um, where I work, we've actually we've actually posted these around and sent out an email to everyone, and because it specifically shows how in millions of adjudications. Uh, for clearances, both secret and top secret, there have only been a hand, a little over a handful that have been rejected purely for mental health stuff, right? Um, now, if you have mental health stuff that's not treated and then you have some severe actions, that's different than purely mental health. But purely mental health, we're not talking about PTSD. If you go and you look it up, the main question everyone's worried about, that question's been specifically, if like if you go back through a, a, a clearance uh, process right now, you'll see that that question specifically annotates that if you're talking about PTSD, that's not what they're looking for when they say, have you received psychological treatment? Okay. So 
Um, that's, that's a really important one for everyone to understand. So what about TBI? Well, um, jumping from PTSD to this, remember back to that Venn diagram. There's a number of symptoms that any couple of which just about everyone who's a GWAT veteran will have, and they can be caused by multiple um, conditions. I would argue that TBI, in my opinion, uh, reading the most recent evidence, is probably the most difficult of the other conditions to deal with. Why? Because it's got an irregular presentation. I can't go and say, well, this part of, you know, say for instance, someone having sleep issues, cognitive issues, and, and um, mood instability, right? If someone has a significant um, combat experience and they, they're close to a whole bunch of explosions, we know now that, that exposure to lower amplitude explosions over time, many of them, can cause traumatic brain injury, right? We don't know exactly where that line is. Uh, and that line is probably a little bit different for every person, depending on genetics, depending on psychological conditions at the time, depending on sleep thereafter and how well they were able to heal. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff. But if you imagine, if you think about the average, um, uh, GWAT veteran, especially those who did, you know, anywhere between four and 10 deployments, um, you've got all these exposures at the same time and the chance your brain really had a, a an easy time to heal is very little to none, or at least that was my experience. And so you can have this really irregular presentation of TBI, especially if you don't have this um, huge moment of bam, I was blown up. I couldn't think for five days. I couldn't remember who my wife was. Those are those are fairly easy. I'm talking about these other ones. And so, um, what, what do we do with this? Well, in my opinion, the key with this is to keep an open mind. All right. And that, that's pretty vague, but if we go into it and we say, this part's absolutely TBI and this part's absolutely PTSD, we're not going to get anywhere. Um, and if we accept that the incidence is much higher than we had previously thought it was going to be, TBI that is, um, if we accept that that incidence is pretty high, I sort of operate under the impression that it's there in the majority of special operations operators to some degree. The degree is there, we don't know. Um, and it's certainly not for lack of trying. Right now, the military has poured a ton of money into uh, research. Same with the NFL, right? Like we have both the military and the NFL have partnered with the leading universities in the entire world about trying to figure this stuff out. And at least from what I've seen, we don't have great data yet. Now, is there data ongoing about point of impact stuff? Yes, absolutely. And is there data about severe TBI, right? Uh, and what I mean is those who are learning to eat again, talk again, stuff like that. So, so on sort of the extremes, right when it happens, right? That, there's, there's a lot of new good information coming out about that and biomarker tests and, and functional MRI and all sorts of stuff that's coming out with that. And then on the flip side, the folks who are really severe, there's, there's good data there. I would argue that for the folks who have 
been exposed to repeated explosions over a 10 to 15 year period at low amplitude and also have sleep issues, also have PTSD. That's where we're really struggling. Um, and that's specifically where a lot of the research is going on right now. But that's why I can't just order an MRI and tell someone, hey, I ordered your MRI, bam, here's exactly where your TBI is. Because A, we don't have those capabilities. Um, B, even if we did, it's not like we can just go in and suddenly fix that part of the brain. We don't have a magic pill. We don't have a magic procedure. We're not going to suddenly like cut it out. Um, one way to think of it that's been helpful for some folks is to consider heart attacks. So if you go back, um, uh, if you go back in the history of heart attacks, they were described in, in Greek times, right? And of people clutching their chest and then dying. And there have been like informal autopsies for hundreds of years um, that have shown where the heart was changed. But when did we actually know that there was something going on? Well, the, the general, something has damaged the heart. That something's made it stop getting its own blood and then it stopped beating and died. Um, from there and to the point where right now, if someone has a heart attack and they get to the hospital in a, in a pretty quick amount of time, they can, uh, the, the outcomes are just amazing. We can, we can identify it by a blood test. We can figure out how long ago it was by imaging. We can figure out exactly where it is. Not only that, we can go in and use a combination of procedure and medications to either completely remove, uh, the blockage and, and cause the per person to have almost normal functionality thereafter, or, uh, get pretty darn close to that, right? So we've, we've got that level of specificity. I tend to think if, when I listen to people talk about TBI, that we are expecting science to be at that level for TBI at this moment. And frankly, we're just not there yet. Okay. And so that we're, we, we've got this standard that it took us about 80 years to achieve from the time that general pathophysiology was figured out. Now, yes, we have a whole lot more scientific tools at the moment, but I would argue with TBI, we are way closer to those early stages um, than we are, uh, you know, the, the super advanced heart attack stage if we can go in and figure out exactly what to do and immediately fix it. Right. And not only that prevention, right? Like I, I've got as a family physician, I have a whole host of lifestyle modifications and drugs I can put someone on to prevent a heart attack. And, and really we've been able to take cardiovascular disease and grab a hold of it. Um, and again, I just, I think with TBI, that's sort of what we're demanding of the science, but the reality is we aren't close to it yet. What about sleep? So, uh, we've talked about sleep a couple different times already. Bottom line, we have consistently bad sleep. Uh, it's a combination due to a combination of PTSD, circadian rhythm disorder, obstructive sleep apnea, chronic hyperarousal. Why it matters, whether your brain is injured physically, traumatic brain injury, or psychologically, uh, post-traumatic stress, either way, it has to have sleep to heal. Okay. So that, that's just what has to be there. And, um, 
what we can say without a shadow of a doubt is that uh, the majority of GWAT veterans, especially uh, those still active duty uh, and in soft units at the moment are getting really bad sleep. What can we do about it? <clears throat> this is one again where, especially as the medic, super important that you get them in with their primary care physician. Uh, they get them uh, really worked up for this. Make sure that it's not a physiologic cause like obstructive sleep apnea or something else that can be treated. And then we, you know, we go from there and treat that as it is. Um, the other thing I would offer is that sleep therapy is uh, as effective or more effective than PTSD therapy. So that uh, 85 to 90% uh, positive outcomes for PTSD, sleep therapy is just that good. Um, and if you're, if your primary care physician can't do sleep therapy or is not aware of uh, sleep therapy options, that's a time where um, either you as the patient, you as the medic uh, really should demand for more from the system, get a referral to a sleep center and, and really get in. And it's more than just does this person have obstructive sleep apnea or not. For example, one of, if you look at some of the latest research, we're finding that there's changes to people's sleep rhythms with PTSD that looks sort of like sleep obstructive sleep apnea on a polysonography, which is the, the test we use to, to assess that, but it's not sleep apnea. Um, what is that? Well, frankly, we don't really know yet. We know that it gets better with PTSD treatment uh, or with treatment of PTSD, but the bottom line is sleep, in my opinion, if you look at where all these things cross over, functionality can improve the most with sleep. It will help the other ones improve. So there's no reason not to make sleep sort of the cornerstone of what you're doing uh, to, to assess and treat guys who are struggling with some of these issues. <sighs> Suicide. Um, yeah, it's a big side because what do you say? Um, the unit I was with in Afghanistan 2009-10 uh, took a lot of casualties and as many KIA as we had and as terrible as that was, I think we've now lost almost double the suicide. Um, and it's terrible. I mean, it's, it sucks, um, for everyone. And I'm not going to get into the, the more emotional parts of this with suicide other than just say that in my experience, um, and what I've seen with suicide with friends of mine, um, what I've, what I've seen with soldiers, uh, whether I look at it objectively or emotionally, it's, it's really hard not to say that it's connected to combat. Okay. Now you, there's a lot of folks with strong feelings on either side, but especially medics out there. Remember it's, it's our job to heal and care. Um, and getting into a big argument about whether it's connected to combat or not isn't really fair. And I would argue that if it's not connected to combat, then why the heck are so many veterans killing themselves? In some way it's connected. Doesn't mean it should happen. I'm not saying like we, you know, we shouldn't say that we should be okay with this, but, but it is connected to combat in my opinion. Um, one of the things I think we get lost with, with suicide is the difference between correlation and causation, right? So we, there's always alcohol, not always, there is, very often alcohol and substance issues, relationship issues, 
a lack of purpose, access to weapons, all these things enable suicide. Um, and I think that, I think none of them, if you talk to psychologists in and of themselves are the causes. Okay. They can be part of the cause. Usually the cause is something psychological that's far deeper and they have been say self-medicating with alcohol, which then has exacerbated some of the thought processes that lead to suicide, right? Or the relationship stress is due to the same underlying issue that caused the suicide and that stress from the relationship issue contributed to it. But again, um, I think I would just caution that some of these, uh, these more surface level things that we see, um, we think, well, if we just fix them, we'll fix suicides. And, and that simply isn't the case. Um, it, it, those, those, those issues I would, I look at more, way more as warning signs. Right. Um, and I don't suddenly think that if we all just, boy, if the MWR just gave us a couple more dollars so we could go on marriage retreats, all the suicides would go away because our relationships would suddenly be wonderful. Well, no, that's just not how this works. And I, I don't think that anyone in a high level is that callous, but I think, um, there are times where, uh, talking to the rest of the guys, um, it can certainly feel that way, that that's the thought process. And so what, what I would encourage everyone to think about is not so much, um, these sort of hot topic things like the alcohol and the relationship and the, uh, that type of stuff, not so much, how do we prevent them, but more what is driving them. Right. And that, I mean, it's one of the same, hopefully if you address what's driving them, you'll prevent them as well. But, but that is not the thing that's making someone get to the point of suicide. It's whatever is underneath. And then it's just the snowball effect building up. Um, one of the things I think can be most difficult for special operators to look at with this and, and really anyone is what, how do what, what level of emphasis do you want to give? Right? Like we, we really worry about, um, we worry about ignoring this and we worry about stigma and we worry about overemphasizing it. And the analogy that makes the most sense to myself, uh, it makes most sense to me about how to deal with this is really a knee or a shoulder injury. Um, if I take, you know, if I go back, um, you know, to basic training, I remember coming off an obstacle and tweaking my knee. And ever since then, um, that knee has been prone to every now and then cause me some pain in that exact same area. And sometimes it's bad and it'll last for a couple months. And sometimes it doesn't bother me for years at a time. The vast majority of the time when it bothers me, it just needs a little bit of rest. Um, sometimes it can get bad and need some physical therapy because I've ignored it and I tried to push it too hard. And some things I do are going to sort of trigger that pain regardless, right? Does that mean that I should never do PT again. No. Um, to me, I should just like hang it up and be like, yep, I'm done. I love army. My knee's just always going to be bad. No. Um, does it mean on the other hand that that knee, knee needs surgery right now? No. Does it mean I can completely ignore it? No. 
I think if we think of PTSD and TBI and suicide and all these things, I think if we think of them like that, that's the model that makes sense to me of we can't focus on them so much as to say that all of the, like we are all victims and we have all experienced this psychological trauma and this physiological trauma in our brain and we are all inevitably going to kill ourselves. Well, that's not true. It's not helpful. It's just not reality. Um, but it's, it's where a sort of anxious mindset can take you with this stuff, right? It's also not true that ignoring them is going to help it at all either. Like we, we proved that pretty well, pretty conclusively over the years. So I think it's more of just having a, a, an objective viewpoint of, Hey, look, these things are there. They're different for each person. And what, what each person needs more than anything else is a group of friends around them that can support them. Um, and, and, and people they can talk to and get an objective view of themselves from talking to their friends and knowing when they need to get extra help or not. But that needing extra help is not going to be like every day. It's not going to be every week. It's not, it's not going to be every month or every year for the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people are going to be able to handle this on their own or with just one or two other friends, the most, the vast majority of the time. And every now and then they'll need more than that. And, and I think if we get to, I think that's what the data supports as far as utilization and, and, and what's actually a disorder and what actually leads to suicide. And I think if, I think if we take a more objective mindset like that, we're going to get to a place where we don't have such a strong stigma. And, uh, we're also at the same time, not going to ignore it completely. So I, I hope that makes sense. The one thing I can say for sure, uh, in my experience saves lives is getting guys to talk to their peers. Um, I've used this tactic, uh, as, as a soldier, um, you know, just talking to the guys I deployed with and also used it as a physician. And, um, my, my thought is, you know, knowing from my own experiences of when I've had bad thoughts, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to call some hotline and talk to some stranger. I don't know at 2 AM. And if you are, that soldier is great. Good on them. Utilize that. But the reality is the vast majority of folks aren't going to do that. Who are they going to call? They're going to call someone they trust and they can talk to about it. And I always say, you know, you need to sort of break the ice ahead of time. Um, and so because we, the majority of soldiers have, especially GWAT soft veterans have had some level of psychological stress and have likely had some level of traumatic brain injury, we are at higher risk. And so if we're at higher risk, one of the things we can do is break that ice, talk to peers about it. And then when you really need someone, you, you've already crossed over that threshold one time. And, and it's a whole lot easier to have that conversation at 2 a.m. If you've talked about it, even if it was sort of sur surface level sometime before. And, and what I've found is, is when I'm more concerned about soldiers, you know, as physicians, we always have these follow-up plans for, for, for conditions we're really concerned about. And for me, the one I use the most is, Hey, in addition to here's mental health number and, and, and getting in with them and, and, and absolutely making sure they're seeing someone. The most important one I have found is making sure that, that the soldier has someone that they have talked about what they're struggling with and they feel they could call at 2 a.m. And, 
I have had multiple cases where um, someone or their family member, uh, when we were talking later on, were crying and saying, hey, you getting me to call talk to someone allowed me to call them when stuff got bad in the middle of the night. And I felt like I didn't have anyone else I could call. And so that is a technique I have used and I strongly believe in it. It makes sense to me as a soldier and it makes sense to me as a physician. And I strongly recommend it. So with all that, is there any good news? Yes. All right. So PTSD, there's excellent cure rates with therapy. We've already gone over that. TBI, we're still learning all the time. More importantly, key symptoms that contribute to suicide, i.e. the sleep issues, the uh, mood instability, those things improve with therapy and they improve, like, like have good outcomes with therapy, right? So, so that is another place where we have a treatment there to, to deal with something that can, can result in suicide. Sleep, excellent outcomes with therapy. And, and the final bit of good news is I, I truly believe the military is honestly trying. And this comes from someone who, when I left the military to go to med school, uh, seven or eight years ago, I was like, tech with this. I was just a cynical. They don't care. They don't get it. And in my, in my objective opinion now at this point, watching how senior leaders are, are really trying to build programs, especially in the soft community that comprehensively get at these issues. I truly believe the military is trying. And I think, uh, I think that the success of those programs and the long-term success is going to come from soldier buy-in. And I think the biggest part with that is medics. I, I, I truly believe that we can change the culture of a lot of these things. If guys get the sales pitch from their medic and not a, not a half-assed, I'm doing the sales pitch just because I should, but you guys are really looking through this evidence and explaining to the guys, here's why these treatments work. Here's why the programs they're putting together work. And if you don't believe it, fine, don't tell them. But, but I would, I would challenge anyone out there who truly doesn't believe that the military is trying to do this and that these programs don't work. Go find the evidence. And if you can't find anyone else to argue with, send it to me. I'd be glad to look at it. Um, so that, that's sort of where, that's sort of where I think we are now. The, the really interesting part of looking at this is post-traumatic growth. So Joe Cooper before Afghanistan does not go to med school. There is no way in hell I could get in. And I wouldn't have considered it. I wouldn't have been a good candidate. Something changed in me in Afghanistan and drove me towards it. Part of it definitely was some significant survivor's guilt and me wanting to go because my buddies, you know, didn't make it back alive and I didn't want to, I felt guilty for being there. And I was like, well, gee, if I'm going to be alive, I'm sure as hell better doing something decent with my life. And, and so part of it was certainly like me struggling with my own demons. Right. But part of it was also this thing called post-traumatic growth, which is a very real thing. So for the vast majority of people, um, who have survived trauma, there's positive changes to some degree. Okay. Usually it's an appreciation for life. It's relationships with others, new possibilities in life, personal growth, spiritual growth. Clearly not everyone, especially with the issues we just talked about. Right. But most people have some changes there and improvement. Now it's important. We talk about the difference between resiliency and post-traumatic growth. So resiliency is a personal attribute or ability to bounce back and it's returning to a previous baseline. Growth is actually exceeding that baseline and it, it, it's becoming 
a a um, uh, a more developed person overall. It's a life-changing psychological shift in thinking and relating to the world that contributes to a personal process of change that's deeply meaningful. Okay. And so it's, it's really a, a fundamentally different thing than just bouncing back, which is resiliency. So keep that in mind. So why does this matter? Well, traditionally the approach of PTSD treatment and in general, the way we've talked about it, right? Like our lexicon within the military, it's always been based on PTSD is a problem and the goal is resiliency, just getting back to the baseline. But what if the treatment is not on resiliency, but instead rather on thriving, right? To, to promote growth beyond just survival, to use trauma as a way to challenge and guide the patient to improve themselves and the world around them. I would argue that um, our elite special operations units have been utilizing this implicitly for years. Um, both with their training and their response to traumatic events. And I think that's part of the reason why we have this amazing tradition of very accomplished folks coming out of uh, the special operations community year after year after year. I would also argue that that's where you have the World War II greatest generation and a number of folks from Vietnam. Like you can see this in a lot of empiric examples over the years after war. But I, I think it, I think we could do even better if we acknowledge that it's there and focus on this thriving instead of just resiliency, right? So, um, if you look, there, there's a lot of evidence beyond just, hey, this is what Joe Cooper thinks about these, uh, you know, special operations communities producing these great folks. In general, research shows that, that personality traits, the big five, are stable by age 30, okay? The average person just simply doesn't change um, unless there's something pretty dramatic happens. Um, there's been some great research into folks whose spouses uh, died of cancer, and those individuals uh, displayed personality changes uh, primarily in, in improved interpersonal relationship, um, pro-social behaviors and dependability, those areas they found improvement without any therapy, anything else, just by having a, a spouse who had terminal cancer. So that's not to say that everyone who has a traumatic experience is going to have post-traumatic growth. That's clearly not the case. What it is to say is that if we have, if we know that growth is an option and that's something we want and, and, and something we, we think we can build towards, then that's yet another reason to change our approach to trauma, right? So early intervention then is not just about reducing the likelihood of long-term mental illness, i.e. PTSD, but it's also about increasing the likelihood of post-traumatic growth rather than just how do we get you back to baseline a couple years from now. Um, and so that's all the more reason to focus on really getting effective mental patient-centered mental health uh, and getting our guys into that early. So with that bit of good news, I'm going to end this on some more good news. So what did we do with this patient? The one we talked about way back about an hour ago, um, who had come in and said there was no big deal and clearly there were huge issues, right? Well, what we actually did was, was Dr. Maurer and myself, who, who, uh, the psychologist who prepared this presentation with me, we treated him together immediately. Like I went, I went and got him and we saw the patient together that day. And that's gen uh, generally what I tend to do 
um, with patients with multiple comorbidities in the mental health domains, especially uh, uh, active duty guys or veterans, because I, I want them to realize from the very beginning that that your treatment plan is not going to be just silos of you're going to see this doctor and this doctor and this therapist and this person. Like it's it's got to be truly multidimensional and holistic from the beginning. So we saw him and we said, okay, you don't want meds. He was pretty emphatic on that. He was pretty emphatic initially that he didn't want to deal with any of the traumatic stress he'd been through on deployments or with his wife's death. And so we said, all right, we'll deal with the sleep. And just like I've been saying throughout, we said no pills. And with some sleep therapy, and we're talking five minutes of therapy with Dr. Maurer, uh, he went from one to three hours of sleep tonight up to, to somewhere around, I think at that time, like four to six. Um, when he came back two weeks later, he's like, wow, this is life changing. Uh, and, and his buy-in went from, I don't think there's anything really that wrong to, holy crap, I did not realize how much I wasn't sleeping. This is huge. And, but the nightmares were still waking him up. So we added in Prozosin. So we got buy-in for using a pill. And then once we got his sleep up to seven or eight hours a night, he was like, wow, this is really great. And then he realized that he had other issues that needed dealt with. And we had complete buy-in from him to deal with everything. And the, the end stage with him more than anything else, you know, we, we addressed the TBI, we addressed the PTSD, we addressed a lot of chronic pain he had that he didn't realize he had. Um, we addressed all of these things concurrently. This, this is now an individual who has left the military, has a very successful post-military career. Uh, he's actually done an, a, a lot of interviews talking about um, his struggle with uh, PTSD and, and these other issues. And, and he's not out there saying, Ooh, it's all easy. It's all simple. Like it's, it's definitely been a bit of a struggle with him, but he is thriving and he is someone who is absolutely in the category at this point of post-traumatic growth. And, and when he came in, he's was no different than everyone else of there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. And, and the biggest striking change was he did not realize how poor his quality of life was due to all these things that were affecting him and how easily it would have been for them for one more negative action to happen and then to snowball and roll downhill. The, the final thing I would lead you, leave you with is going back to that scab analogy that I used with the therapy. So we, we've got trauma. We've got trauma well dispersed throughout, um, you know, the, the GWAT veteran community and the soft community, it doesn't have to stop everything. It's, it's more like someone who early on in, in, you know, a long ruck march or a marathon cut their leg and has had this wound and the, they put a temporary bandage on it and they were able to gut it out. And they, they gut it out throughout the rest of that marathon. And that is just amazing that they were able to do it, right? But there comes a point where you can suddenly take a knee and fix that wound. And I tell guys, just because you can gut it out, just because you've been able to this long, does not mean you have to forever. You had to. You absolutely had to for a long time. You couldn't take a knee and go to you know, four or five months of therapy and do the stuff you need to do to re rebuild relationships while you're deploying year after year after year. 
But once you get to a place where you can do that, why do you want to keep walking with that open wound? And why do you want to keep, why, why not fix it? And when I put it like this and folks think about it, I, I've gotten good buy-in uh, from folks at that point going, wow, you're right. I do need to go back and heal it. And it's not saying that we're going to erase everyone, every everything about who you were as a soldier. And it's not to say that it's all bad. You earn that scar from that wound. But it is to say that there's no way that that wound can heal as good as it would heal otherwise if you keep walking on it. And if you stop and you let modern medicine fix it, you'll be shocked how much better you can walk and run on it. So I appreciate uh, your time and hope this was helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Joe, for going over this and just showing us how you know integrated everything is with PTSD and TBI and one injury just leaves you to be more susceptible to the other. But also just kind of the, the hope that, you know, baseline is not necessarily the best outcome you can hope for that we can actually uh, grow stronger through the struggle of recovery um, but I'm wondering what you guys are thinking uh, leave your comments uh, with the podcast and uh, in the next couple of weeks Joe and I are gonna have another podcast and and just sit down and chat about this and uh, what is it as medics that we can do about this to help facilitate our teammates uh, in their in their own recovery. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Out. Boy is waiting there for you.